I'm proud to introduce tonight's speaker, Ted Conover. Ted Conover is the author of several books, including Rolling Nowhere, Riding the Rails with America's Hobos, and New Jack, Guarding Sing Sing, which won the National Book Critics Circle Award and was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. The recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship, he is the distinguished writer in residence in the Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute at New York University. Please join me in welcoming Ted Conover. Thank you, Gregory, uh, and thanks to all of you for coming tonight. Uh, and thanks, Zocalo Public Square. What a fantastic uh, speaker series this is. I'm, I'm very proud to be a part, and I'm very happy to be back in L.A. I was thinking back this afternoon on the first time I spoke here about my writing, and it was at a uh, bookstore, which I believe is still going, called Libros Revolucion, near downtown. Uh, they were interested in my book, Coyotes, uh, for which I had also traveled to L.A., and I thought, uh, though I'm going to talk about my new book tonight, I would tell you that story, because it began with a road trip, uh, what, what was intended to be a road trip in Phoenix, where I was writing about migrants who uh, worked in the citrus industry outside Phoenix. There isn't a lot of it left. But they had a great organization, a farm workers group that organized even people without papers. And uh, I, uh, I tried uh, picking lemons alongside the guys I was getting to know there and found that I was not up to that task. Uh, I tried as hard as I could and I couldn't keep up. So I found uh, a role teaching English in some of the ranches after hours, people who worked there were really, ex really wanted to speak English uh, and get out of the orchards and get better jobs. Unfortunately, rains came, and the ranch I was uh, living at fired all of its younger workers, who were basically people my age, guys my age, who were trying to figure out what to do next. And the best plan seemed to be to come to L.A. because somebody said... He had an uncle here who could help, help them find work. And I said, well, can I go with you guys? And they thought that was kind of a strange idea. But they convinced the coyote, who had a very awful old station wagon, um, to drive them in that, that I was okay. I would not get him busted. And I would pay the same as everybody else. And we, we set off at night for L.A. And we made it about an hour out of Phoenix. And the car broke down think they had paid him $150, $200 a piece, uh, which money was lost as he disappeared. And we all, all ended up back in Phoenix where somebody saw an ad from Southwest Airlines, which had just started these super cheap flights. And it was something like $45 to fly. So, so why not fly? And, and I said, I don't, I don't know. Why, why don't you fly? And they said, well... We don't know about the airport here. Uh, we don't know about the airport in L.A. In fact, none of us has ever been in a plane. Would you uh, possibly go with us on that trip? And I thought, oh, well, that's a little more scary. But um, okay, why not? I'll try. And so we did. Uh, we flew here from Phoenix. It was really scary to go through security, not because you needed documents. You didn't back then. That's how we could do this but they'd never been through the checkpoints. They were all carrying lots of metal. One guy I was with uh, thought he was supposed to lie down on the belt. And, um, and I, 
uh, my heart, I was the most nervous by far. Uh, I was not going to profit from this transaction, but I knew somebody might look at it that way, and so I just didn't want any attention at all. We made our way to LAX, and I was thinking about this as I flew in last night, uh, how panicked I was 25 years ago, because I was with, um, I think, five guys in an airport I didn't know, and we needed to get out of there because that's where police were. We just needed to go somewhere for this uncle to come pick us up. So we got our bags from the carousel and walked outside to the taxis, and there's a list of destinations, and the cheapest destination was Santa Monica. So I said, let's go to Santa Monica, and um, we did. We ended up at an all-night donut shop and, uh, and called the uncle from a Holiday Inn next door, and we sat. And now here I, I will reveal to you my secret fear, which was that um, as a uh, light-skinned, blonde-haired guy with Mexicans, I would attract a lot of attention from Mexicans in the neighborhood where we were headed, and they might not be as uh, friendly to me as the people I'd been working with in the orchard. So this, I, I am put, telling you this up front because it's important in just a second how wrong I was. Uh, in the donut shop, we had coffee, we had donuts, we waited. It was, uh, I don't know, it was, it was past midnight. There was an assortment of strange characters coming in and out. Uh, I taught them how to play dots. You know the game where you make a grid of dots? I see, thank you for nodding. Uh, you try not to create a full square because then you have to put your first initial in it and you, or, or no, you do try to create a square. Anyway. Uh, I was very absorbed in dots and uh, didn't pay it much mind when a drunken guy tapped me on the shoulder and I looked up and he was wearing a leather jacket. He was a punk. He had kind of a swollen lip and he was really drunk and he said, uh, white guy talking to Mexicans. And I said, yeah, you got a problem with that? He said, no. No problem, no problem. And he walked over, I can do this, right? He walked over to uh, the counter, he got something to eat. I was watching him in the window, I, I could see his reflection in the front window of the donut shop. I watched him for about five minutes and then I, I forgot about him, which is too bad, uh, because he came back fr and from behind, he just punched me right there for sitting with Mexicans and uh, knocked me on the floor and, uh, and walked out. And that was it. And I, I was like, what happened? And uh, the guys I was with were petrified and I didn't know what to do. Uh, a, a homeless woman, I think she was homeless, she had a lot of shopping bags in the booth next to mine, uh, started yelling for them to bring me ice. They brought me ice. She helped uh, put it on my eye. I sat. Uh, I waited. The uncle arrived. He didn't want to take me because I was white. And I said, he better take me after all this. And then he said, so who's he been fighting with? And they told him. And he said, he asked the, the word he used was, you know, 
who was the cuate, who was the cousin who hit this guy, which uh, kind of suggests it might be Mexican. And then they told him, no, no, it's another white guy who hit him. And he was incredulous. And it was the funniest thing he ever heard that uh, one of my kind would hit uh, another of my kind uh, for no good reason. And uh, he just thought that was so hilarious. And, uh, and I thought how stupid I had been um, to get it wrong. And, and I learned this interesting lesson about uh, racism uh, completely by mistake. Uh, but I've carried it with me, and I have um, tried over the years to, um, to choose my companions according to criteria other than the ones that um, maybe are more commonly used. Uh, I, I, I like living in New York because it's got so many different kinds of people, and you can talk to them. And that's kind of been the key to whatever success I have had as a writer. Uh, is getting out there and trying to talk to people who aren't like me. So that's kind of a root of this book. Uh, road trips, travels with people uh, doing their things. Right before we went to, no, it was after the trip to LA. From Phoenix, I drove to Florida in a terrible blizzard with another group of guys who were headed to pick citrus there. Uh, the chapter's called Phoenix to Florida at 25 miles an hour because that's how fast we went. It was a terrible ice storm. The car needed transmission fluid every, uh, every couple of hours. They had no map. I said, how do you know where to go? And they said, we, we know. They had memorized the route to LaBelle, Florida. We were getting very hungry on the second day, and I said, I, I need food. And they said, don't worry because soon we're going to see El Viejito, the, the little old man. And I, I said, uh, you know somebody out here? I think we were in Tennessee or Georgia. And, uh, and they said, yeah, sí, 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 El Viejito, ya viene. Que viene aquí. And, and uh, we drove on a little further, a little further. Uh, we turn off finally into the parking lot of a, a Kentucky Fried Chicken uh, <laughs> franchise. And I, I had pictured this kindly old grandfather who's going to whip us up huevos rancheros or something and it was uh, it was regular fried or deep fried and, um, but it was a cool way to see the United States through their eyes and travel on roads it struck me as a good way to get to know just about anybody because things always go wrong there's always something unexpected that happens and uh, you get to see how people handle it my book before this one as uh as you may know, is about working as a correction officer at Sing Sing Prison, uh, a, uh, an experience of confinement uh, for staff as well as for prisoners. And, and uh, one night I was very lucky. I got sent out of the prison on a transportation detail with a gang member who'd gotten in a fight. And when that happened, the prison authorities shifted them to other prisons so there wouldn't be more fights. This prisoner didn't want to talk to me at first, but we stopped on the throughway for fast food. There seems to be fast food in all of my, all of my um, stories, right? Um, and he started talking, and one thing he said is, as we looked at the big trucks parked there and pulling in and out of the rest stop was, that's what I, that's what I want to do, CL, when I get out of here. When I finish my bid, I want to drive one of them things. 
and I thought, uh, wow, I think I can uh, relate to that right now. I'd, I'd much rather be doing that myself. The idea stayed with me. Uh, to my um, uh, surprise, a few, oh gosh, a few months after I had uh, finished with New Jack, that book, I got a call from a magazine I'd always wanted to write for, National Geographic, and I was, I was really excited by it uh, until I heard their idea, which was to write about a new road that would connect the two coasts of South America. I had never um, aspired to write about infrastructure, didn't they, didn't they know that? I was a writer who, um, who, who traveled with, with migrant workers who, who worked in prisons, um, but they said, this, this could be a cool story, and I had to call them back. I had to think, how would you write that? How would you write a book like that? How would you tell that story? And I decided, well, maybe you could tell it through the people, the people who are on that road, whose lives uh, will change when the road finally, uh, finally connects the two coasts, the people who live in remote places that are about to very suddenly become less remote as, as traffic goes through. And I thought, uh, maybe I can do this. And I called them up and said I would do it. And they asked, uh, they, they told me how much was in the budget for various things, including uh, um, my, my translator and my driver. And uh, I said, well, I don't think I'll need a translator. And what would I need a driver for? And they said, well, to get where you need to go. And I thought, that's absolutely the worst way I could possibly research a story as to have a driver uh, taking me around. And so I went, uh, I went to Peru. I took a, a series of trucks to get over the Andes to uh, go down into the rainforest where the road peters out into very little um, and where everybody uh, cuts wood. That's how they make a living down there right now. There's not agriculture yet because there aren't uh, many fields yet. They all think that's likely to change, and I do too, but right now they cut wood. And so uh, the, wood, it, the, the wood is way up rivers. Y you can't cut valuable wood like mahogany near a road. It's all gone. So they take boats up rivers, they cut wood, they float it down to the road, and the road takes it away. And so with that story finished, it occurred to me that a book about roads themselves could be used to tell all kinds of uh, crucial stories about, about which way our world is headed. Uh, that road tells a story of development versus environmental destruction, which is what comes when a road goes through. Uh, not just plant life is affected, but human life in a place like Peru, which has indigenous people living far, far away from the roads. Uh, as settlement comes in, as traffic arrives, those people are affected as well. So that's a big theme of our world right now. Another is, um, is uh, isolation and what happens to isolated peoples when a road comes. I write about that in, uh, in a little corner of Ladakh in northern India next to Pakistan and China. I, I write about roads and disease in East Africa, uh, roads and war, roads and uh, the boom in China, and finally, roads in megacities. The book starts with a simple path in Peru and ends in Lagos, Nigeria, which is typical of the kinds of cities that uh, most of the world's people will live in within a few 
years. Uh, there are no American roads here. I thought I might write about traffic in Los Angeles for the final chapter, but while I was getting ready to do that, a great book called Traffic came out, uh, which covers that uh, topic nicely. I recommend it to you. Uh, so I was left with roads outside the United States because it seemed to me uh, in places that where roads are new, you see their power more distinctly, more clearly. But with Peru, I thought of a better way to start my book than I thought of for the article, which was to begin where I live in New York City, where there aren't very many trees, but where a friend of mine, a carpenter, had spent four years uh, doing very high-end work in a, a maisonette, a two-floor apartment on the Upper East Side. This apartment is owned by a, uh, a, an heir to a wealthy, uh, to an American fortune. Um, the couple loves mahogany. They used um, between seven and ten trees worth of mahogany in, uh, in building 15 and a half miles of um, trim molding, many cabinets, uh, I think it's 76 doors. Uh, my friend helped build and hang out of mahogany. Uh, it's just everywhere. And uh, the man he worked for uh, gave me a tour of the apartment. And I thought, this is pretty amazing. Uh, let me see if I can trace this mahogany back to where it came from, because it came from Peru. Brazil stopped exporting mahogany in, I think, 2001. That's when the export ban began. Peru, until very recently, and I think still currently, is the world's biggest supplier of mahogany. It's not going to last forever. Mahogany is commercially extinct in um, places in Central America, like Honduras, where some of the best uh, wood came from Cuba. Uh, it's basically gone. Uh, Peru still has it. The road will hasten its removal. And uh, I thought, uh, that's a pretty cool... It's a, there's a storyline there. It's, a, it's not a cool story. It's a, uh, it's a good storyline. It lets me talk about something important by telling a story that makes it seem human. Uh, it's not just about facts and figures. So, so I follow that road back to the very camp where the wood is cut and I get to watch the wood being cut and it's a, it's a very moving and even uh, a disturbing uh, thing to see. My second road uh, is basically about teenagers in Ladakh who want to get out of their isolated valley. They're Tibetan Buddhists. They're lovely, lovely people. But like teenagers all over the world in small towns, they want to go someplace bigger. I found this so many places. Uh, you, you think you're in the middle of truly the beyond. You're, you're at the back of beyond. I was in a mud house with a teenager whose uh, father is a clerk for the local government. The, the first floor of this house is reserved for farm animals in the winter so they can stay warm and not die. Second floor, you go up through this little hobbit staircase. Uh, in his bedroom, their son had the same poster of Avril Lavigne that um, my daughter had on, <laughs> on her wall. And I thought, I don't really believe this. Uh, I, and I told him, my daughter uh, loves Avril Lavigne. And in fact, we're, we're hoping to go to an Avril concert 
next month, and his eyes got so wide. It was like uh, I was heading for a glimpse of God or something, and um, that's far, far from the truth, but, uh, that, but uh, not, from, not from certain perspectives. So they want to get out. They, wanna, uh, they want connections to the outside world. The only one they've got in the winter is a six-week window when a river through a gorge freezes hard enough that you can walk on it. Uh, and they do. They walk as quickly as they can to stay warm. They have to spend three or four nights in caves along the way. Um, parents and uncles come with them uh, to keep everybody safe. I tagged along as well. It was uh, a great trip. They pointed at the road that the Indian Army is building in the rock wall overhead uh, to supply its troops in the winter right now. The troops on the border with Pakistan need a ton of food which gets flown in. They'd rather have a road. I said, a road is going to do terrible things to your beautiful valley, and they, all of them, thought I was nuts. Uh, they they uh, could not believe that anyone would have anything bad to say about the road. The people who cut wood in the Amazon uh, get very angry if people talk against the road, as a lot of um, uh, workers for NGOs down there do. Um, I met one anthropologist. Peruvian, fully aware of all the terrible things that w- were going to happen when the road came in. He said he could not speak publicly about it because uh, he'd be drummed out of town. So uh, there is the passionate desire for roads in these uh, remote places. People see them as the way to get the things that we already have. And it's very hard uh, to tell them they should stay the way they are. Uh, very, very hard. Uh, the third chapter, and I'm going to go through this quickly now, the third chapter tells of a revisit to a trucking company on Mombasa, Kenya, that I first visited for The New Yorker in the early 90s. Uh, a Kenyan scientist had identified truckers as likely carriers of HIV from Central Africa outside along roads. Truckers are among the most mobile people down there, and uh, back then especially, but to this day, they spend a lot of weeks away from home sometimes, and they uh, patronize sex workers during these periods. The men transmit the germs, uh, they infect the sex workers, who then transmit it to other men, and uh, they are aware of this, of the mechanism of it. I wanted to talk to them about that awareness, see how it changed how people act, how they think about the world and life and what they do. And um, uh, so I did that. I traveled with them for six weeks and then went back uh, just a couple years ago and, and traveled again. About half of them are still alive. Several of the others have probably died of AIDS. You don't really know because they don't do autopsies in most cases. And malaria still kills an awful lot of people there. And above all, there's immense denial about the disease still, as there is here, of course, but it seems even more there. Uh, The week I arrived in Kenya, the economist reported that the vice president of Kenya had just died of AIDS in London. Uh, This was not reported in the Kenyan media, um, though a lot of people knew it. Um, At the higher levels of government, the people I knew, uh, the people I was with who I asked about it, all denied that it was possible. 
massive death has a way of, of uh, transforming denial, and that's what's going on now. Um, it's, a, it, it's a very rattling experience to see uh, people 10 years later who've, who've gotten ill and aren't doing well. My main guy, who I take another trip with in this book, uh, is apparently immune. Uh, there's scientists working on a vaccine in England and in East Africa, many of them Canadian, who believe that something around one in 65 people is actually immune to HIV. And the guy I was with must be because he uh, has more sex than anybody I have ever <laughs> run into. Um, chapter four is called A War You Can Commute To. My wife wouldn't let me go to Iraq or Afghanistan. Um, and I should be grateful, I guess, because uh, they're awful places for a journalist. And, uh, and a couple people I know have been uh, uh, gravely injured over there. Uh, much more significantly, our soldiers uh, get hurt there, often on roads. That is where we are vulnerable. That is um, the Achilles heel of an occupying army these days is the road. The, uh, improvised explosive device, as we all know, is uh, very hard to defend against. Roads have these, they are, they, they are long. We spent $200 million replacing the road from Kabul to Kandahar in Afghanistan to help rebuild the country. And the day it was dedicated, um, the dignitaries all flew in. Uh, according to the New York Times, it was too dangerous to drive on that road. And it's still extremely dangerous. Uh, many people have been killed, uh, both our Afghan allies and, um, and our soldiers on those roads. So uh, because I couldn't go there, I uh, thought, well, how about the West Bank? Um, uh, it's not really a war, is it? Because um, that was kind of our deal. Uh, I would not write about a war. And... And we decided it wasn't really a war like the others, though it, it sure has a, a lot in common with one, uh, as you would see if you went. Um, travel is very tightly controlled in the West Bank. And as I spent first uh, about three weeks with a company of Israeli paratroopers north of Ramallah, these are people who... Uh, we're running checkpoints to stop bombs from traversing the 60 road that connects the main Palestinian cities. As I spent time with them, their work reminded me of, uh, not of war so much as of uh, the prison I had, had just worked in. And it reminded me of that because that's how we controlled numbers of people vastly greater than ourselves. We controlled their movement with gates and, uh, and locks that restricted their movement into small, small groups of people going to specified places at a time. Um, the, the army to stop, to stop bombs uh, runs checkpoints. Uh, the main difference being, I think, that um, unlike I, who at least knew the people I was frisking, had been convicted of serious crimes, the Israeli soldiers um, knew that uh, most of the people they had to check uh, were not guilty of anything. They simply lived with people who were guilty 
of something. And uh, as soldiers, that was a frustration for them. Um, the young ones talked about uh, want, wishing they'd been soldiers in the good old days uh, uh, when some of the early paramilitary units in Israel, I, and I, I cannot pronounce this with confidence, the Haganah. Does anybody know if I'm saying that right? Haganah. Uh, and the Palmach uh, 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 felt like uh, liberation forces uh, instead of uh, groups of soldiers supervising civilians. In other words, in the old days, you fought against soldiers. And now, in so many parts of the world, soldiers uh, protect against civilians, uh, as, as our soldiers in the main uh, do in the countries where they find themselves right now. So uh, the hardest part of this book was switching sides. I had met at a, a lecture in uh, Susquehanna, Pennsylvania, a young Palestinian who asked, they were asking what I was doing next. I said, I'm going to the West Bank. Why are you going to the West Bank? Well, I think it would be interesting to see uh, how, you, how you travel in a place like that. Uh, and afterwards, he came up and said um, his father uh, is a professor in uh, Hebron. His brother's a student. He himself grew up in the West Bank. And um, like his father, he was getting his PhD in science in the United States. And and if I go, I should look up his family. So, so I did. Uh, I went home with his brother uh, from university in Ramallah down to Hebron, where his father was now, he is now the president of Hebron University, and went through the same checkpoints that I had uh, stood around with soldiers, which is uh, uh, harder than it sounds uh, to suddenly... I think just because I'm human, I tend to make friends with the people I'm with and like them. It keeps happening to me. And, uh, and I felt that way with uh, Khaldun and his friends as I had felt with the soldiers. But uh, each side has a lot of bad things to say about the other and you feel uh, like you're in a terrible, terrible place if you like people on both sides. Um, but that's where I think, uh, that's where I, I thought I needed to be to write this book and, and write about what that same road meant to uh, people on, on either side of the checkpoint. Uh, the, book on, the chapter on China, I think, is the most fun. In China, they uh, have, uh, they're now the biggest car market in the world. You may have heard that. They buy more cars than we do. Uh, and that I would say it's, it's fair to say they enjoy them a lot more, too. Uh, they, uh, I, I hooked up with a driving club called the Beijing Target Auto Club. This is a group of people who, now that they have cars, want to take big trips with them. And they don't want to just go up for a weekend. They want to go for a couple weeks. And not only that, they want to go really, really fast. And, um, and then they want to have a good restaurant at night, uh, where you can have a lot to drink and, uh, and a good bed to sleep in and then get up early and start again. And uh, so I had this great guy I uh, was paired with. I'd offered to drive. They said, well, that's, we're not sure uh, if you'll need to, but um, Mr. Zhu needs a passenger to share expenses. And I paid for me and my translator, Li Lu, um, who described herself as a taxi girl from Beijing. She said, I don't know why men want to drive in cars so far. Uh, uh, 
she thought the whole thing was crazy. Um, but she was a good sport. And so we went out for a couple weeks into central China. Um, Mr. Zhu's Hyundai Tucson, uh, uh, he had this upscale edition of it with um, running bars and wood. And uh, it, was, it was three months old and it had more than 10,000 miles on it. Uh, <laughs> he could not drive enough. Uh, he wanted to drive all the time. And uh, in China, I think this comes from a long feeling of having been denied cars. Even the Soviet Union had a lot more cars than China. The Chinese saw them on TV, on movies. They knew the rest of the world was having all this fun in their cars, and they could not. And now they just, they know this is bad for the environment. This is bad for the planet. The cities are shrouded in smog. The pulmonary diseases of people as a result of emissions are a national health emergency, but they want to drive. And uh, so my group, everybody had a sticker on their door with a number on it. They had CB radios so they could talk about where they were, who was getting there first. Um, they pass on the shoulder. They. Uh, they see no reason not to do that. It's just as wide as the other lanes. And if there are like sweepers in, on the shoulder, uh, <laughs> usually they get out of the way. Um, sometimes there's a broken down vehicle and then you feel like you're in a video game where you've suddenly stopped and you shoot back into the slow lane and you shoot into the fast lane. And uh, it reached the point where I said, Lilu, uh, would you ask uh, Mr. Zhu if he would uh, slow down? Uh, and I, and she did, and he, he didn't. And, uh, and I said, would you tell him that uh, China uh, is the most dangerous place on earth to drive uh, bec because the fatality rate is, is so high here, especially among men his age? And... Uh, and she told him, and he looked over at me. And uh, I said, did you ask him to just slow down? And she said, I'll tell him again. And this time, he really gave me a look and speeded up. <laughs> so um, there's some kind of lesson in that. Uh, I'm just going to read you a very short, uh, uh, very short passage at the end here, and then um, I think we'll move into questions. So I have uh, five minutes or so? Yeah? Okay. Um, in Lagos, I hooked up with some ambulance crews who hang out at uh, highway intersections. They, they need to be there because uh, it's really hard to get where you want to go. In Lagos, there's terrible traffic 24 hours a day, and so you might as well be on the highway uh, when the calls come in. Um, uh, it's, it's just an incredible place. The traffic moves so slowly that uh, it supports all kinds of non-traffic activity, like vendors who will sell you anything, really, truly, ev anything. Um, they, they walk between cars. There are gang members called area boys, many of whom uh, live under underpasses, who come up and they... Um, they jump on trucks and shake down the drivers and shake loose cargo. And uh, 
Sometimes the drivers punch them or stab them, and then they come over to the ambulance, and, uh, and the nurses sew them up. And uh, uh, 50 feet from all this uh, is likely one of four of the police forces that patrol these streets, uh, sometimes getting in fights with each other uh, over whose turf is that particular ramp where you look for a little flaw in a car, uh, which is worth money, um, after you pull a driver over. And uh, uh, so anyway, this is, uh, this, is, this is about those policemen. And just so you know, I've, uh, I've talked about the Nigerian Electric Power Authority, also known as NEPA, which people say really means uh, never expect power again. <laughs> because... Um, <clears throat> because the power goes off all the time with terrible consequences for traffic. Um, one of the nurses at Point 5, the ambulance uh, post, observing the knot of policemen who hung around the ramp nearby had commented, as we say here, the fear of LASMA, that's the name of the police force, is the beginning of wisdom. I wondered about the person at the top of the traffic police bureaucracy, wondered if there was a glimmer of method behind the madness. Could he be the most corrupt of all? I had the idea of interviewing Lagos's top cop would be tantamount to encountering Kurtz way up the tropical river in Joseph Conrad's heart of darkness. And who wouldn't want to do that? <clears throat> the river in this case was the Apapa Oro, Oro I've never been able to say this, Oworonshoki Expressway. And the chief young Areba men was not hard to find. His office sits atop a four-story walk-up building just down the highway from point five. The corridors are on the building's exterior out of the range of air conditioning, as is the reception area outside his office where two uniformed officers sit at desks and another wearing a gun stands guard. Uh, people were ahead of me to plead their cases to the chief, people who got big tickets. For example, if you're caught driving the wrong way on a street there, you get sent to an insane asylum. <laughs> <clears throat> you will think that is an apocryphal story, but it is absolutely true. Um, uh, they use it as a punishment. Uh, and there was a guy in line who was a driver for a rich man. The rich man wanted him to take a shortcut he had, and now he was being sent to the asylum. Um, uh, I heard him do some of these hearings, and then I talked to him about corruption. Arabaman acknowledged that there was corruption. He blamed it on lack of training, a culture he'd had to inherit. He'd come from the Nigeria police force, where I later learned that he had a reputation for honesty and low pay. A higher budget would increase professionalism. As a symbol of his want, he asked me to look around the office. Do you see any screens with traffic conditions? Don't you think that would make sense in a city of 14 million people? I agreed, but found myself riveted by a set of photos behind him. I don't know how I hadn't noticed. The glossy photos were practically a wallpaper. So many of them covered the wall behind his desk. Each one showed an officer who'd been attacked. They had swollen eyes, split lips, bloody noses. All of them had been beaten by drivers. It's a very dangerous job. There are many motorists who are not law-abiding. <clears throat> I'd had a photo like that taken of me at Sing Sing after I was spit on and punched in the head by an inmate. But I didn't especially sympathize with these officers. I'd seen Lassman men in action and knew that nine out of 10 of them had probably provoked their attacks. You know that some of them deserved it, I said. 
Arabaman sharply differed. Nobody deserves this, he countered, gesturing angrily at his men. There would be little order at all without them. If you looked at it that way, he was probably right. I was thinking about that on the day of my final interview with Ayubami Omiyale, the chief of another group of highway cops, the Lagos State Federal Road Safety Commission. He had invited me to interview him at home. I was being driven in a taxi to the Alakuko district near the city's northwestern edge. Our conversation would focus largely on the mentality of Lagosian drivers, particularly what Omiyale called the road accident immunity delusion syndrome, which was pretty self-explanatory, but would, would touch as well on fatalism and the idea of the road as harboring evil. Many Nigerians said Omiyale saw the hand of God in any accident involving themselves. I talk about some uh, <clears throat> ideas in, in Yoruba about spirits that cause this. It reminded me of Nigerian novelist Ben Okri's idea of the road as a creature with a malevolent, consumptive power of its own in the famished road. I particularly remembered this story of Omiyale's. Many drivers, he told me, carry a protective talisman one driver in a fatal crash, the driver who lived, carried a shell on a string in his pocket. As he reached for his wallet to show his identification to Omiyale, he saw that the charm had broken and threw it away into the weeds. You see, the chief explained to me, it was his good luck charm. And because he was still alive, he gave credit to the charm. But obviously it had broken in the effort to save him and had no power left. The literal belief in charms was a bit different from my own, though perhaps not entirely. I'd been carrying an umber-colored, charmingly twisted piece of stick in my day pack all these trips, something my wife had picked up on a hike and given to me, declaring offhandedly that it was good luck, which I suppose it had been and would be until it wasn't anymore. <laughs> As was commonly the case, the electricity was out as my taxi took me to Omiyale's, and therefore so were the traffic lights. Each major intersection was thus an exercise in brinksmanship, in closely following any car that seemed to have momentum, because the idea of alternating was lost in the volume and lack of well-defined lanes. My driver had nerves of steel and had passed through several chaotic junctions when we came to one that looked relatively uncrowded. It looked as though we'd be able to creep through e without even stopping when the lights came back on. And seemingly within a space of two or three seconds, a policeman stepped into the traffic in front of us, blowing his whistle and pointing accusingly at my cab. He directed us to the side of the road where there were several others in uniform, told the driver to put it in park, and then reached in and took the keys. The driver prepared to get out to discuss the matter. On his way, he reached above the visor and pulled out a thousand Naira note. That's at $8.50. This happened to equal the agreed upon fare to the house of Omiyale. It wasn't your fault, you, I said. You couldn't have known the light would come on at that second. Don't pay him. The driver nodded and shrugged. He's got the keys, he said. It was all over but the arguing. The driver hemmed a bit, but I could see his heart wasn't really in it. The money landed in the policeman's palm. Soon the keys were back in the driver's. I then talk about a different kind of stress which uh, involves sort of volume management on this highway uh, instead of like movable barriers like we have on the Tappan Zee Bridge or I think they have on the Golden Gate, uh, you know, to change lane size for rush hours. 
people start driving in the median when your lane gets too crowded. So the lane expands into the median, and then if the oncoming traffic is light, it expands <laughs> onto that as well. <clears throat> Everybody pushes in. As I sat in the back of the cab, as though I felt as though I was in the middle of a giant automotive mosh pit, helplessly part of an aggressive crowd. Much of the time, other banged-up cars and trucks were so close I couldn't have opened my door to escape even if I had decided to. But that was a hopeless idea. At the moment, I was trying not to look at the young vendor who'd assumed a fixed position directly outside my window. Dangling from his outstretched arm was a string of dead rats. He bumped them against the window to get my attention. I knew what these meant now, but a couple of weeks ago I had not. Oh my God, I remembered saying to Biola, who would buy dead rats? It had taken her a moment to understand what I was thinking. Once she did, she began laughing almost uncontrollably. They're selling poison, rat poison, she explained between hoots of laughter. Those dead rats just show it works. <clears throat> it's advertising. After my interview with the chief in the same taxi back to Bill's where I was staying, we found ourselves in the same kind of jam. This time my way of coping as the sides of trucks and buses replaced the view of shanties and billboards was to imagine an aerial perspective of the mess a la Google Earth. From above I could see that the battle for the median strip was in a way a version of this volume control I just mentioned. In Lagos, uh, uh, the same thing seems to happen, but without the intervention of traffic engineers. In my mind, I kept rising so that I could see for blocks and blocks. I could imagine the yellow of the buses and taxis standing out against the gloomy gray of almost everything else. The other specks of color I conjured up were the pinks, greens, oranges, and reds of women's traditional robes. I could visualize the evangelist billboards. Lord, let us tell good from evil so that we do not die of the unexpected. Satan, stop that mess, a prophetic breakthrough sermon, beckoning men and women to lives of purpose and moral conduct. Evangelical Christianity and populist Islam were the fastest growing religions here, and they were of a piece with the worldly grime and grit. They offered a path to higher ground, a spiritual elevation from the omnipresent squalor and constant threat of scam. Higher yet, I could picture the boundaries of Lagos, those edges where creeping urban settlement met with field and forest. Roads connected the megacity to smaller ones, but this megacity was hardly alone. Lagos is, quote, simply the biggest node in the shantytown corridor of 70 million people that stretches from Abidjan to Ibadan, as Mike Davis has observed. At night from space, you'd be able to see an amazing band of lights across the coast of West Africa at least if the power was on. Thank you very much. Todd Kerner, this is a particularly prickly moment in Israeli-American relations, and the unique perspective you must have had being in the West Bank, both with the Israeli soldiers and the Palestinian people. Is there any reason to have hope for the future of these two peoples, or is the idea of a two-state solution out of reach? Huh. I'm, uh, thank God, that's not what my whole book is about. Um, <laughs> because it's, uh, it's, it's such a vexing uh, situation with uh, 
so many extreme uh, uh, views around it on both sides and such a uh, complex and nuanced history, which I'm not an expert in. But let me just say that the president of Hebron University, which was closed by the army for something like half of the last 10 years as a, because it's a hotbed of activism, is run by a man educated in this country whose uh, youngest son is uh, learning Hebrew because his dad says, to do well in the world you're growing up in, you need to know Hebrew. And uh, you, 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 need, you need to know how to talk to Israelis. Um, the son I met in Pennsylvania is active in Seeds of Peace. You know, this is a group of young people that works on fostering understanding between other young people. And so you see, you meet people like that and you think uh, there is some um, important mass of people there who want to find a way out of this. And you meet them in Israel as well. Uh, The captain of the group of soldiers I was with struck me as a, as a very humane person, which might strike some uh, in the audience as hard to imagine, but he, he really, uh, he, he had many, many admirable qualities. I, I, if I were a soldier, I cannot imagine being as good a soldier as him. He cared so much for his, his, his people and uh, like to think um, some middle ground and common sense will, uh, will work out. Uh, uh, there are so many reasons not to think so, but um, the, I mean the alternative is just uh, uh, impossible to imagine. It, 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 there, there has to be a solution, and we have to uh, we have to make it happen. And I'm glad <coughs> that uh, the U.S. has expressed at least some outrage for the, um, the insult shown Vice President Biden when he got there that <coughs> the uh, settlement was proceeding despite his visit. That was just such a thumb in the eye of, of the United States, if you ask me. Hi, my name's Chris McCabe, and I wanted to ask you uh, a question that, that pertains to New Jack and also the current collection. Yeah. With New Jack, you were not, uh, you were not telling others at the prison that you were planning on writing a book. That's right. Um, with, with the current collection, were you doing the same thing uh, with holding, holding that information? And if yes or no, how, how did that affect your, your writing and reporting no, uh, uh, differently? You know, um, New Jack's the only uh, project I've conducted strictly undercover, quote unquote. Um, uh, there were times when I was writing the rails for my first book when I stopped telling everybody who, that I was a college student because I realized that might put me in danger. Uh, with people who thought I didn't know what I was doing, but all these places I went, I, I stand out, and I, uh, uh, my presence begs for an explanation, and I, I gladly supply it. I think uh, as a journalist, that is the uh, proper thing to do 99.9% of the time. There is a, that, that tiny percent of the time when there's an important story uh, even an urgent story, which I think our incarceration crisis is, which a, a situation presents itself, like the, the idea of working in a prison that I could not uh, report in any other fashion than, than by uh, keeping my uh, plans to myself. So 
Um, I told the truth when I applied for the job. I didn't have to lie. I, uh, you know, I was glad on the application I had not gone to a famous school like uh, Harvard or Yale because they would have said, what the hell are you doing here? Uh, they'd never heard of my college. Um, they didn't ask if I'd written any books. I had um, done lots of menial work to support myself as a writer. That fit in. The only thing they didn't get is why, why a person who had worked as a VISTA volunteer uh, in a poor neighborhood would suddenly be interested in corrections. And um, I said, people change. <laughs> and, uh, I'm not, I don't want to trivialize your question. I, it, it, it may come from a, a, a reasonable question about uh, journalistic ethics, which is always fair game. But um, no, that, I knew Jack. I, I didn't tell people till I was done. Uh, then I started telling my friends who I'd worked with because I didn't want them to um, be surprised. Uh, they have all liked the book except for a, a tiny, tiny handful. Uh, the main people it's upset are the top brass of the Department of Correctional Services who... Uh, whose who's, uh, walls I snuck around. Hello, I, I'm interested in how you manage the tone of your writing. Uh, travel accounts the, the way you've told here, uh, that uh, you avoid the uh, uh, a tone of condescending slumming, more or less uh, uh, upper, upper middle class guys taking the train up to Harlem in the 1920s. I mean, uh, people laughed at a lot of your stories that may or may not have been funny. Yeah. Um, tone is a huge, huge question when you are a <clears throat> person from a wealthy place going to a less wealthy place. And in particular, if you're a white person going to a place where uh, uh, people have other colors of skin. And um, uh, there's no one answer to your question. My, my tone is uh, just, I think, more than anything else, a reflection of how I think of what I do, which is uh, I think I'm really lucky. I think um, I've had the privilege of growing up in a, 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 in a stable family and, and of being educated, and those advantages I can put to use in looking at some parts of the world that I think need attention often. And, uh, and more often than not, I think of the people I meet as people who have something to teach me. So I'm not, uh, I'm a, I try to make myself a student of them, not always, but as much as I can. I think that's a, a seemly posture if you're out there uh, writing about the world. Um, you know, I don't want to be overly Reverent. I don't want to be boring with pieties about uh, uh, the goodness of every living person. There are some awful people out there, and when I meet them, I I like to say that. Uh, but I uh, and I and readers have to believe that I'm going to be real. That I'm going to be a person who who reacts honestly to things. But I do. Um, I think I. You know, in in preparing to write Rolling Noah, I read a lot of those narratives of so-called tramps, super tramps, who would uh, go out, you know, to basically write about their own adventures. And, and you get really tired of them really fast 
They're, they're just so boring and dull to read, and there's so many other ways to connect with your subjects. And uh, uh, I, I don't have a better answer than that. Hi, my name is Bret Hart. Um, I had a question about, uh, you said you didn't write anything too much, well, you were going to, but didn't really get to about American roads, and how uh, you also mentioned how many times roads around the world uh, brought you know, uh, people and, and sometimes disastrous things to uh, places, uh, usually rural places, but maybe how uh, sometimes the opposite, how roads also sometimes divert uh, people from those places, like places along Route 66 that are now probably ghost towns, but at one time were on a major uh, populated highway. Yeah. So, is there a question? Oh yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, how why did how did you leave that out of your book? You know why did you? Oh, Route uh, 66. Yeah. You know, um, uh, I I refer to Route 66, but I, I didn't want to write about a. It's it's almost a folkloric road now. Um, and there are several books about it already, and to travel Route 66 is to go places that, as you say, have sort of receded into um, less interest and less importance as, as traffic dwindles. And so there's a story to be told there, but it seemed to me not as good as some of these other stories. Yeah, my, my agent kept saying, you really need an American road. You, need, you really need an American road. And uh, I tried. I really did try. Uh, uh, but these other places were just so interesting. Geography uh, seems to be a common theme uh, within all, all your books, uh, New Jack, if, if you define geography as, as spatial or, or the variable would be yeah. space. What, uh, and geography is now a lost art. Uh, what, what provoked um, that interest, uh, say, in, huh. in your youth? Or? Huh. I, I am interested in space, and my, my wife, who's my best reader, thinks that um, I'm really good at describing a space, and I always like to make clear what space something is happening in. I like settings, and uh, I'm not sure I can say why. I, uh, I grew up in Denver, which is, you know, crossed by roads and railroads, and uh, is sort of in the, in the, the middle of things. And um, from the moment my parents let me take long-distance bike rides, travel for me was a way of being independent and of, uh, so of, of having self-determination and then also as a way of educating myself uh, outside of a school, which uh, I, I feel I've been empowered by schools, but I've, I've always thought if that's the only way you got your education, you would be making a bad mistake. And uh, in travel to different places, I've found I could affect a different kind of education, uh, you know, of meeting people unlike the ones I would meet in school or grew up with. So uh, uh, a variety of places has always been a priority for me. And I, I, don't, I can't really explain it better than that. Hi, I'm Veronica Pesinova. I have a very practical question. How do you actually do it? Like, for how long did you travel... Do you travel like to one place? Did you go yeah. back to New York? Yeah. When do you actually write it? Do you write it after you get back? Or when you're, <laughs> I travel a lot myself, and I just don't have the time. I'm just trying to figure out, you know, 
where do I sleep? Where do I eat? <laughs> what do I do? And, it, and I'm tired, so writing. How much? Mean, how much time do you have for this answer, <laughs> Veronica? <laughs> All evening. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, Oh, there's different ways to answer this. The, if I had done all the research for this book without going home, I would have been away for about 15 months. Um, my, my kids are uh, young teenagers now. I didn't want to be away from home for 15 months, so I, I spread it out to a trip or two per year. Two, two trips, usually. Some places I had to go back to. I went to Peru three times. I went to Ladakh twice. Uh, um, I would usually stay about a month, five weeks, six weeks max. Uh, I take notes all the time. I take photos because sometimes a picture can remind you of all kinds of things. And um, uh, at the end of a day where interesting things have happened, I, I have this little battery-powered laptop type thing that I just just empty my brain onto. Um, and then once, once I'm home, a couple of these began as articles for magazines, which helped me afford the, the travel. But when it came time to write the book, I started from the very beginning, and I rewrote even those articles. I wrote the whole thing through, because to be a book, it can't feel like pieces. It has to be one big story. And if you haven't written a book, it's like writing an article, but you just keep going. <laughs> you know? Was it like in total? Like How many years? Yeah, from oh, the beginning wow. to the finish. Oh, this was a big. This was like six years. This took a, this took longer than any other. But it's partly because I, I I'm teaching now. That takes some time, and it, life life slows you down, right? Yeah. But anyway, thanks. Thanks, everybody. Thank